0: We have this saying when we start like product roadmap meetings, where we start with a slide that says the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think that's the secret behind uh, the answer to your question, because um, focus is, uh, is very hard to maintain. Like, How do you make sure that the team is focused on the main thing? Uh, there are many, I think, companies that says, say this, the same thing in, in different ways, but maintaining a product-first uh, culture is critical, and maintaining a customer-centric culture is critical. Right?
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Matan Barr, CEO and co-founder of Milio, a leading B2B payments platform that aims to keep small businesses in business. The company has raised over $500 million from a who's who of FinTech investors, including Excel, Code 2, Bessemer, General Catalyst, Thrive, Tiger Global, and more. In this episode, we discuss understanding your customer. Prior to writing a single line of code, the Melio team set up an old-school bookkeeping business in Manhattan to truly understand the challenges of their future clients. The importance of velocity to launch products and being comfortable with making mistakes but correcting them very quickly. Matan used to lead peer-to-peer payments at PayPal, but then built a business-to-business payments company. What led him down this path and what are the differences and similarities amongst the two? Why his biggest mistake was optimizing new hires for skills and not for culture, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this truly awesome conversation with Matan Bar from Milio. Matan Bar, thank you for joining the FinTech Leaders podcast. Very excited to to be talking to you. How are you? Are you doing? And where are you calling from?
0: For, first, th- thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited uh, to participate in, in this wonderful podcast, and uh, I, I'm uh, uh, calling in from Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, where Milio's Uh, R&D Center is at. Um, And again, thanks so much for having me.
1: Fascinating. Well, Matan, I don't want to lose a second of this interview, so let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background, but especially guide us through your first experience building a company, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was called the Gifts Project, which you eventually sold to eBay slash PayPal, because PayPal was still a part of eBay at that point.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So during my last semester at Tel Aviv University, uh, I studied computer science and and business management. And uh, before I graduated, like during the last semester, two friends of mine came to me and said that they want to start a company together. Um, these are two very close friends of mine until today, uh, and it was uh, around social commerce. So back at the time, Facebook just released their uh, APIs for the first time, enabling uh, third-party developers to send messages uh, to uh, friends and family uh, through APIs and you know, pop-up notifications. It was a very open platform, much more open than it is today. And and we saw this as a great opportunity to support a use case that back then we thought is very interesting, which is group buying. Um, So we basically thought that um, it would be very cool if uh, we would build a platform for e-commerce sites that would allow customers to buy items together. So for example, think about going to a Lady Gaga concert uh, with uh, three other friends. Instead of one person buying the ticket for the entire group, Uh, we could build this like group checkout experience where you could invite your friends using the new Facebook APIs, and each person uh, chips in or pitches in uh, the amount that is required to buy their own ticket. Uh, Or if you have a a gift for a a wedding that you want to buy together with friends, and there's a a registry uh, on Crate and Barrel, and there's a very expensive item, so you invite a a few friends and you split the cost, and buy the registry item together. Uh, so we were, around,
1: You were early on social commerce.
0: Yes, I think back then social commerce was very cool. Um, we're talking about like, I don't know, 2008, 2009, uh, like that period of time. And uh, anyways, we, we built this like group payments platform that combined e-commerce payments and Facebook APIs. Uh, we raised money from Index Ventures and we started like, integrating into different partners. eBay was one of our customers. StubHub was one of our customers. Crate and Barrel was one of our customers and many different retailers where we enabled group purchasing and splitting the cost between friends. And it it went really well. Um, Long story short, after three and a half years, something like that, uh, eBay Inc with John Donahue as their CEO back then reached out and asked to uh, acquire our company. We were very excited about eBay's vision around uh, social commerce, which was the, the main trend back then. And so um, we said yes, and uh, my team and I joined eBay Inc. Um, and uh, since then, I've been with eBay and PayPal for uh, many years before starting uh, the current company, which is Milio.
1: Uh, Matan, you were a master of your own destiny by, by leading your own company, The Gifts Project. Why decide to sell to someone else? Uh,
0: it's a great question. So uh, back then, during the the time uh, of the Gifts Project, I was the Chief Product Officer, and uh, my dear close friend since the age of eight was the CEO, and uh, another friend from university was the CTO called Ares. Anyways, we uh, after three and a half years, we uh, got an offer from eBay. Uh, that was not only, I would say, life-changing financially for us. I was like 26 years old, uh, didn't have much uh, assets uh, in my life in general, I would say. Uh, I'm probably negative uh, at, that, at that phase of life. And, um, and, um, and so financially, it was like truly a life-changing event. Uh, but more than that... Um, we were acquired in order to open a new innovation center, a new R&D excellence center in Tel Aviv in Israel, which we just loved uh, the concept. And so it wasn't just uh, being acquired and being integrated into a team. It was actually opening a new center of innovation in Tel Aviv, basically expanding uh, eBay and PayPal teams in Israel and uh, leading this uh, incredible uh, efforts to find the next billion dollar business for ebay which was our charter back then so it felt just a very good journey and it was i loved every second of it as opposed to many entrepreneurs that are I, w- I would say sometimes reluctant about how corporates manage themselves i have to say i don't have the popular opinion of uh Hating the corporate. I actually uh, owe a lot to eBay and PayPal. And um, I, we truly enjoyed every second. We built amazing products during our time there. And so we just had a blast. Uh, so that was a successful acquisition. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that we got a lot of independence and forming our own center, uh, R&D center in Tel Aviv.
1: So at PayPal, you ended up leading a global team focused on peer-to-peer payments. Uh, maybe tell us about what you learned there. And also let's transition to talk about Milia, because it's very different. I'm sure there are similarities, but now you're focused on B2B payments.
0: Yes, that's, that's accurate. Um, I, uh, after our company got acquired uh, and after spending a few times on the eBay side of things, I transitioned uh, to PayPal. PayPal and eBay were the same company during these days, and then they split into two independent companies. And after a relatively short period of time, I started leading the P2P group globally. So P2P at PayPal means anything related to friends and family payments, uh, like paying back for coffee using the, the PayPal app or sending money to my family abroad in Germany or Mexico, um, um, international payments, domestic payments, w- was all under uh My group, and it was just um, an incredible time because at the time that I was at PayPal, consumers around the world were shifting from cash to mobile payments. Uh, And we were just there at the right time, at the right place, uh, not screwing it up uh, and doing a good job uh, building uh, good products that facilitate different P2P use cases. But we grew the business from I would say 5 billion of payment volume a year to more than 50 billion of payment volume a year in like three and a half years. It was just crazy growth. Um, And it was true for other P2P apps around the world, whether it's Revolut or in the US Venmo, Square Cash, um, and many, many more that rode the wave of digitization of how one consumer pays another consumer. Um, And uh, it was just a wonderful time. And I learned a very important lesson During that time, which is picking the right space to operate in, is very important. Uh, Having, like, you know, if you have headwinds or tailwinds, really affects uh, your chances to succeed. Uh, And I think that um, we were just riding a massive wave of digitization uh, that set us up for success. and I'm not just saying that to be modest. I think being at the right time at the right place is a very important element of success. You can call it luck. You can call it conscious decisioning. Whatever it is, it's really important to pick the right space even before the product.
1: That reminds me when I was a, a very young banker at City, We had a big CEO come give a speech. Uh, I think it was the CEO of Honeywell. And he just told all his stories from his young days and contrasted with the fact that we're all working hard right the 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 one who is in a failing business and the one who's in a succeeding business we're all working hard so you want to work hard in a big space riding uh, a cyclical wave i guess yeah so why b2b payments and then what are the commonalities with peer-to-peer
0: Sure. So after spending uh, significant time at PayPal, uh, seeing the digitization of P2P payments, of consumer payments, I was uh, becoming more and more intrigued by how one business pays another business in the US or B2B payments. I was actually quite shocked uh, to discover that, still, uh, specifically in the US market, Most payments between two businesses are via a paper check. Uh, So there are like around $14 trillion of paper checks that are moving between businesses every year just in the U.S. I was um, really surprised by this number because I came from a space that was basically fully digital. Um, so consumers now use mobile apps to pay other consumers. And so C2C is digitized. C2B, how let's say a consumer buys from a business is also being digitized and an accelerated space, especially during COVID with Shopify, Stripe, Braintree, like all these uh, incredible uh, checkout companies digitize, digitizing the space of uh, online retail. And so C2B is also pretty digital. Uh, and very online, but B2B, uh, for some reason, at least back then we weren't sure what is the reason, is still very much relying on paper, paper invoices, paper checks. If you ask a random small business owner in the U.S. um, how they pay their vendors, uh, they'll either uh, stuff envelopes, leak stamps, and mail paper checks when they pay their suppliers, or use the bank's bill pay, which is also a very archaic, Uh, way to just send an ACH payment. So It's pretty surprising because the same business owner that is using, I don't know, let's say Square as a point of sale and is using Venmo to pay a friend, the same business owner when they would need to pay the coffee bean supplier, let's say, they would stuff envelopes and leak stamps to mail paper checks. And that's felt like a huge opportunity. Of course, we knew that we're not the first ones to, to discover this opportunity. So it was re- very important for us to understand why Why is it that B2B payments is lagging um, other payment areas. Um, and so I, I just felt, uh, following the last point, I felt there's a huge space right now that I'm sure that the 14 trillion of paper checks will decrease to zero uh, in terms of paper check payments, and it will all move to digital. It just would be the question of which company will actually transition into digital um, and what are the reasons that businesses are not using digital solutions today. Uh, so that's how I was drawn to B2B payments. But I would say one thing more generally, there's a privilege, I feel, and a responsibility for anyone that works in fintech uh, because um, money is very important to people It sounds like a very simplistic uh, phrase but uh, when you make money better you really influence people's lives. never mind if it's consumers or businesses um, you know if you make money faster, cheaper, more accessible, more transparent, more inclusive, democratizing different financial services again no matter if it's consumers or businesses, you're doing something very important that can really affect people's lives. And so I always knew that, you know, my next company would be in fintech and B2B payment just felt like the right um, the, the right area to focus on because there's so much to do and there are so many inefficiencies to solve. Um, so I guess that's how we got to this.
1: Do you remember any of the steps, and maybe you can share some of those, that you took truly understand the customer problem before you launched Milio. How, how did you get close to those future customers?
0: So th- there's a, a story that we're really proud of at Milio. When we started the company, we realized it will take us some time to build our first product, our, our MVP, because we had to do like, uh, to form some partnerships with US banks and we had to hire our engineering team And it will just take us some time to meet the first customer. Uh, And we we tried to find shortcuts uh, to better understand B2B payments and vendor payments specifically. And so what we've done is actually interesting. While we were developing the, the actual product, we hired a person in Manhattan, in New York, that would basically manually do bookkeeping and accounting and payables for 10 small businesses. So with, with, without, without a single line of code, we basically had this person. Her name uh, is Dafna. Uh, today, she's our VP customer experience. But uh, back then, she was our bookkeeper as a service. Uh, but what Daphna did is basically serve 10 small businesses in New Jersey and Manhattan uh, and did all the bookkeeping and vendor payments work for them manually. So the way it would work is over WhatsApp. Uh, the business owner would send us their invoice over WhatsApp, tell us when to pay, how to pay, The now would actually mail the paper check for the small business, update their accounting software for them, uh, send them reports, but it was all manual. She had to get uh, access to the bank account and accounting software in in advance. And so we found 10 businesses that were crazy enough to give us this access, but everything was done through WhatsApp and it was wonderful because we've learned so so many uh, things about the the B2B workflow um, that we could have never discovered with a questionnaire. Because the problem with the the questionnaire is that it assumes that you know which questions to ask. And when you're coming to a new space, a B2B payment space, which is really, it's, it's a B2B payment is more than just a payment, it's a workflow. It has a very important before, very important after, uh, around reconciliation, bill capture, thinking with accounting software, 1099 reports. There's so much uh, functionality around the payment that you know, when, when you're a newbie and you really don't know the space, you don't know which questions to ask when you meet and interview customers. And so we have interviewed some customers, but the pilot that we did over WhatsApp, uh, I think, shortened our path to. Product market fit uh, significantly because we just discovered so many nuances about the workflow that uh, I don't think there would be any other way for us to discover. And then our initial product became a lot more accurate. But that's how we got to meet the market uh, faster than than our even our MVP.
1: That's pretty cool. You, you you created a small business to truly understand the problem and empathize with the customers. Uh, so but uh, your previous role as you've just mentioned at paypal was a global one uh, functioning with many different countries and markets million correct me if i'm wrong you have only u.s clients i understand you have international payments but you are a u.s company i guess with a strong operations and two headquarters in israel um, do you see this becoming a, a global business as well
0: um it's a great question again. The short answer is yes. Uh, the slightly longer answer is one of the the key things I feel that contributed to our uh, progress uh, so far, our fast progress so far, is, is our focus. Uh, focus in terms of uh, the products that we're working on and focus in terms of the market that we focus on. And so Uh, At the moment, we do serve uh, U.S. businesses. We do enable international payments. So uh, uh, let's say a a U.S. uh, legal firm can pay a contractor in Germany that does uh, advertising for them, let's say. Uh, So we do support international payments from the U.S. to 100 different countries. But the payor must be a a U.S. business, a U.S.-based business. We will expand to additional markets after we feel that um, we have uh, reached the right level of uh, feature richness uh, for the U.S. market. One of the unique things about the U.S. is that it's the most fragmented banking system in the world. With I don't know the exact number. It keeps changing as well, but more than 7,000 different financial institutions. um, uh, And and that creates a lot of... uh, opportunity for fintechs like us there's so many inefficiencies in terms of uh, how money moves uh, in the US that are unique to the US even the paper check uh, phenomena that I was referring to uh, when you go to most european countries today and you talk about a paper check they don't know what a paper check is and why why payments are not moving instantly like that's the default like uh, and so in the US it's not the default in the US there are still many paper checks money moves slow uh, and there are many uh, challenges that uh, innovators and fintechs can help solve. So we have so many of these challenges ahead of us that we feel that we have a, a long roadmap ahead of us uh, that we need to address before uh, jumping and um, building a product to additional countries. And also I'll say Media likes building the infrastructure uh, and controlling all the layers in this infrastructure. So we do risk and compliance internally. We integrate directly with the ACH system. Like we don't work with too many intermediates because uh, we're a payments company and we want to have full control and flexibility over the experience. It's not even cost optimization. Of course, uh, you know, using intermediates increases your cost, but it was never, at least until now, it was never a real consideration for us. It was more around making sure that we control the experience. And so if we want to move money faster and take risk, then it's up to us, it's not up to anyone else. And we have the flexibility to make these types of decisions. So uh, that means that opening a new market uh, is not, a, is not a, an easy task. It's not a difficult task, but if you want to have this connection to the infrastructure without too many intermediates, it takes more time to open a new market and that's a conscious decision and trade off that, you know, we keep thinking about, but um, so far it, it paid off.
1: You, you mentioned feature richness, and, and I want to zoom in on, on that concept. How do you ensure that you're launching the right feature for your customers? And what are some of the most popular products these days? Yes,
0: yeah, so I think that's, the, that's the billion dollar question. I feel, I think the realistic answer for many companies, including us is velocity is actually the answer. And the reason I'm saying velocity is because it's not easy to estimate what will work great and what won't with innovative functionality. If you're doing things that are, you know, well-known in the market, uh, that, that's fine. It's more predictable, but with many innovative features and innovative products, I think the key ingredient is velocity, like build fast, of course, with the right level of quality, uh, but build as fast as you can. And so even if you make a mistake, you build fast again, and uh, companies that build fast tend to find the right features for their customers. Um, of course, you have all the fundamentals of you know being very close to the customer and listening to feedback and you know being very connected um, to your market. Uh, uh, but that's, you know, given. Uh, and there are companies that are doing it better, companies that are doing it worse. But, you know, assuming that you know, you know, your market well, it's all about velocity. Just build as fast as you can, uh, be in the right space, and the rest will follow. Uh, and it's not easy to build fast, especially as uh, as the company grows. But if you do continue and maintain high velocity uh, even if you're a bit inaccurate in terms of your roadmap and you've prioritized you know, uh, some features that didn't work, if your velocity is 10x the, the competitor, then in any case you'll, you'll conquer the market before them and you'll serve customers uh, and provide value in a much better way. Uh, so I think velocity is the realistic answer. We make sure we have a good, accurate product strategy so that You know, when we need to make a decision on whether we should pursue a certain initiative or not, our product strategy is one that is accurate enough that can tell us whether this is part of our scope or not part of our scope. So, of course, being close to the customer, having an accurate product strategy are the fundamentals. But even then, you make a lot of mistakes. Uh, And then if you're fast, it's just not a big deal. But if you're slow, if every feature is like, I don't know, six months, a year, then the cost of mistake is frightening. Uh, and that's something that I would avoid at any cost.
1: Yeah. What, one of the things I mentioned before we started recording is that we, we have a, a good number of early stage founders and, and even late stage. That, and, and many of those founders tuning in, they, they probably will get to hyper growth scale. Uh, many of them are probably going through it. And, and you kind of have touched on this already, but as you're going through hyper growth and and you're playing a high stakes game because you're dealing with customers' money, how do you make sure that the wheels don't come off and, and you keep your team focused day in and day out?
0: We have this saying when we start like product roadmap meetings, where we start with a slide that says the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think that's the secret behind uh, the answer to your question because um, focus is, uh, is very hard to maintain. Like how do you make sure that the team is focused on the main thing? Uh, there are many, I think, companies that says, say this, the same thing in different ways, but maintaining a product-first uh, culture is critical and maintaining a customer-centric culture is critical. Everybody says that they're customer-centric. It's very easy to say it, but uh, you need to ask yourself a very simple question. When was the last time that you talked with the customer? Uh, And then you answer yourself if you're a product-centric company or or not, and ask yourself, ask uh, your leadership, ask product managers, ask engineers. I think the, the combination of not getting confused by the different obstruction layers that are being added as time goes by and making sure that, again, you start with the customer and work backwards and maintaining focus uh, because hyper-growth companies uh, have a l- many opportunities, uh, but you need to make sure that you keep the main thing the main thing. And and there are various ways to do that, as, as we just discussed. Having a clear product strategy um, is one of them um, and making sure you skip things that represent real and jump to real. Like instead of like a fancy 15 pages document on a product, show mock-ups. Uh, you know, it's, it's very basic, of course, but uh, there are many examples like that. Like don't talk about things that represent real, like jump to the actual value to the customer. Uh, and I think um, uh, focus, customer-centric and product-first are things that great companies maintain as they scale?
1: Matan, Milio is a payments company and you guys are growing pretty quickly. And if you look at the top 20 private fintech companies, the largest ones in the world, at least half of them are going to be payments companies, right? And and even the public ones, it's going to be maybe even higher than 50%. Can you help us understand why is that? Uh, how, how, come, how can you have so many large players in the payment space, both consumer payments and enterprise?
0: There are, I think, multiple reasons. But uh, to my opinion, the key one is uh, payments is a high engagement use case. Uh, So if you look at PayPal, they start with P2P payments. That was the first use case. And you think about Square Cash, Venmo. uh, Payments is a high engagement use case. Uh, Not as uh, high as messaging. Messaging is even higher engagement. But payments is a pretty high engagement use case, meaning that you make payments every day or every week or every few days. And usually, high engagement use cases are ones that build trust with customers. Uh, if a customer engages frequently with your product, they start trusting your product. And so many companies that are payments companies are ones that customers trust because they engage with them frequently. And so they have the opportunity, the companies, to leverage this trust to then expand uh, their offerings and offer more financial services or, or more uh, products in general, uh, to the customer building on top of this trust that was created from the initial engagement of payments. And and I think that that is, uh, for many, the origin for their success. Um, building trust through high engagement and then uh, expanding to additional offerings uh, is a great strategy that uh, was proven over and over again.
1: Thinking about your... Last four or five years as a as a founder in Emilio, or maybe even before that, what have been some of your biggest mistakes?
0: I think there are, you know, uh, during a, a journey like the one Emilio experience, that like you make many decisions every day, uh, big or small, and so it's not just a cliche saying that, you know. Founders make a lot of mistakes. When you make so many decisions, of course you make mistakes. And and um, I think the 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 biggest mistakes that I've done, at least in doing the, it was probably during the the first uh, six months of starting the company, um, where I optimized um, when hiring people. I optimized for. Uh, skills and didn't pay attention to culture. I'm talking about like the first like 10 people, like I was so eager to start building the company uh, that I was just hiring super fast. And, you know, we had like incredible engineers uh, that joined us, but they were not necessarily the right material to create Millions culture, and um, I think one thing that I didn't realize in the beginning, and luckily we, we fixed it pretty fast, but the, the core group of people uh, that you hire, I don't know what's the number, there are many types of benchmarks, 10, 15, 100, their personalities become the company's personality, like you can define company values uh, and hang them on the wall, I think it, it matters, but it doesn't matter much. Uh, I think what matters is who are included in the group, in the first initial group, because their behaviors will be contagious and uh, other people that would join after would behave like this core group. That's how a company culture is created. Uh, uh, you have a core group of people and their personalities become the company's personality. Now. I wasn't uh, paying too much attention, like you know I didn't hire like terrible people or something like that. Uh, there were good people, but you know, I was uh, hoping for a, a culture with a specific set of behaviors that um, I don't know two people, three people in the beginning were not fully aligned with. And so uh, we had to fix this and luckily we fixed it very fast, but it was like an extreme fix. So now, Milo, is so um, disciplined and strict about hiring in a way that is aligned with our culture that, you know, that mistake uh, basically led to a, an extreme correction that I think is part of our identity today. Uh, so some, I don't know if we, di- if we didn't do this mistake. I don't know if our culture would be so strong today, to be honest, because uh, maybe we wouldn't be so disciplined about it. but. That mistake was a mistake and we fixed it. And I think now uh, we're, we try not to make the same mistake again. Um, but that's that's one example, I guess.
1: I understand that a lot of your technology training comes from the Israeli army. Um, and, and you're not the first or the last with that profile in tech or fintech. What is it about the Israeli army that is just... Training and and producing all these great uh, people in tech.
0: Yeah, um, well, I agree. I think the Israeli army and the intelligence un- intelligence unit specifically are um, are a big contributor to Israel's uh, tech ecosystem. And uh, I think there are two reasons. One is um, really when you're 18 years old, uh, you get a chance to deal with some cutting-edge technologies. And, um, you know, when you're 18, you're already in a team of engineers that are truly doing some incredible stuff. And when you're 19, uh, you become become a team lead of, like, 20 engineers uh, because the 20 engineers are 18, and you're 19, so you're the senior one. Uh, So everything is very fast in the Army, and you get a lot of experience in a very short period of time. Uh, So that's one reason. The second reason is the army does a a very good job selecting great people to these uh, intelligence units. And so uh, by the time you finish the army at 21, you know a lot of smart people uh, that were serving with you uh, and working with you uh, in these units. And so uh, you finish the army. You have a lot of experience with managing a team, with dealing with cutting edge technologies, and You know a lot of smart people uh, from around the country that you can go and start companies with. Uh, So it's network and experience uh, that is leading to uh, having the army be a significant factor in Israel's uh, tech ecosystem success.
1: Mata, we're coming up on time. uh, Before I let you go, Um, what inspires you to to go out and and just... You know, uh, give it your all every day.
0: It's a great question. With a very, at least for me, there's a very simple answer. In one word, uh, building. Um, Like I really love building stuff. Uh, uh, The the passion of creating, uh, the passion of doing zero to one uh, is one that is really uh, driving uh, force for me. Um, And as long as we keep building um, and adding value to our customers, I'm truly driven by that. Um, I would say that's the number one answer. Uh, The number two answer is I personally have, uh, and when we share it in our company's all hands, like we have multiple objectives for the company. One of them is to create a workplace that people feel proud of and feel proud to be part of. and so, creating a company—you know—we were 30 people two and a half years ago. We're 600 now. Creating a company with offices in New York, in Denver, in Israel, um, and creating this culture and, and this group of people with uh, common values and common mission is is as motivating as it is uh, sometimes to serve our customers. Uh, so. It's not just the outcome, it's also the process itself and building this group of people that didn't know each other before and now are in the same room or in the same office, uh, working towards the same mission, uh, same objectives, and uh, sharing values around like why we're doing what we're doing. That's so cool. And um, uh, I, I, I enjoyed that a lot. And usually the two are correlated. When you build a great group of people that are very happy, usually they are able to create a lot of value uh, to customers together. So um, the two are very much connected.
1: Fascinating stuff, and and I hope you know also that uh, you yourself are inspiring, and Milieu is inspiring a lot of entrepreneurs out there. So c- congrats for that. Um, and and yeah, thank thank you for stopping by, Matan. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, I think this is going to be a very popular episode amongst the audience.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you, Matam. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Matan Barr, CEO of Milio. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.